Good morning. Glad you're here. If you arrived late, you missed something. I'm not going to tell you what it was. So you have to ask somebody when you leave today, and that means you have to talk to people. So please don't leave today without greeting someone. We greet at the beginning, but we love to greet at the end. And if you want to learn more about the church, down in the lobby, you can learn about the church. If you want to learn more about God, come to the front. Okay, we are here to pray afterwards, and the people here are praying. And if you want to pray about something or learn more or just pray by yourself afterwards, always, you can come down here. We sing a song at the end, takes a couple of minutes, let people filter out, you filter down, and there'll be people here to pray with you. Well, we're entering the Christmas season, although we're not going to start our Christmas sermons until next week. We're going to be in Haggai for the second week in just a moment. But Christmas is tough for pastors because everybody has an opinion about Christmas. And now as a pastor, you've got to agree with everybody's opinion, but everybody's opinion is different. And one of the ones you got to worry about is Santa Claus. So I'm just going to get Santa Claus out of the way before we even get into December. Can I do that? Because people just go... Are you pro-Santa Claus or are you anti-Santa Claus? Okay, so I'm going to get it out of the way now. I grew up with Santa Claus. Okay, I did. I wasn't a pastor when I was a kid. I grew up with Santa Claus. It is what it is. But somebody gave me a book. I, I like reading books that are about Christmas and things, and a book that was written about 100 years ago, and it was just reprinted this year, a book by G.K. Chesterton, um, who was a humorist but a fine Christian thinker. Um, you may not remember him or know him, but he was a guy, um, he was asked to write an article for a newspaper. They, they had like three or four uh, key thinkers in England back in the 1920s to write an article about what was wrong with the world. And he was supposed to write this article to print in the newspaper. And so he said, he wrote back to him, he says, dear sirs, what is wrong with this world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He, that's what he said. He, he was just, he said, I'm the problem with this world. He goes, he, he was just, he understood life more than most people. So what does he say about Santa Claus? I'm just going to give it to you and let it go, okay? Give Santa Claus a place at Christmas, so long as it's not the highest place. Sing songs about flying reindeer, but let them fly lower than the angels. Set out cookies and milk on Christmas Eve, but remember that flour and sugar and cream are of lesser value than gold and frankincense and myrrh. String-colored lights on every house, hang them from every tree so long as they are lesser lights, and the greater light of the ancient flame burns brighter still. You pick, you want Santa Claus just make sure he doesn't replace the true meaning of Christmas. And if you don't want Santa Claus, don't have Santa Claus. <laughs> there we go. Excuse me. We started in the book of Haggai last week, and you'll remember that Haggai is one of those books that we never talk about because it is so small and so esoteric, but it's one of the last three books of the prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. You remember we talked about that? And it takes place in the last three books of the history of the Old Testament, which is Ezra, Nehemiah, 
and Esther. And we talked about that. If you weren't here last week, I did a whole history lesson about the Old Testament. But what's interesting is we're going to go back into Haggai chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Haggai chapter 2 and get there. But before we get there, I want to talk about the New Testament because when we close the Old Testament, which we're going to do for a few moments in the coming weeks, we're going to close the Old Testament and open the New Testament when we're in December. But when we do that, when we open the New Testament, there are things in the New Testament that aren't in the Old Testament. A lot of different things. When we leave the Old Testament, there are Persians. When we enter the New Testament, there are Romans. When we leave the Old Testament, there is, which we're going to talk about today, a little temple. When we enter the New um, Testament, Mark chapter 13 tells us it was the most unbelievable building in the world. In fact, Mark 13 says this, um, the disciples, this is when Jesus was older, one of the disciples came to Jesus and said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings as they walked out of the temple. Well, when we walk out of the temple in Haggai, it's not the same building that we walk into and out of the temple in the New Testament. What happened? Also, there's some other things. Um, There are things in the New Testament like Pharisees. There were no Pharisees in the Old Testament. There are Sadducees. There were no Sadducees in the Old Testament. And there were synagogues. Remember the synagogues? We have synagogues today. There are two synagogues within a couple blocks of where we are right here. There are synagogues today that were in the New Testament all the way to today, but they were not in the Old Testament. So when we leave the story, there are no synagogues, there's no Rome, there's no big temple, there's no Pharisees, no Sadducees. But all this occurred in the, what they call this big word, intertestamental period. All that means is the 400 years between Esther and Matthew. So can we talk about that a little today? So when we leave the story of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, you remember that the people had come back into the land. What I didn't say much of, and we had a big conversation out in the lobby with a bunch of you afterwards, was most of the people did not come back to Jerusalem after the exile. When the two exiles occurred, there was an exile of the north and there was an exile of the south. We don't need to go into that detail, but most of the people, actually their generations following, never came back. They dispersed across the world across the known world there. That's why even to this day, you go anywhere in the world and you will find a Jewish community because they are a part of a dispersion that occurred 2,500 years ago and following. It's interesting, when Israel was formed back in 1948, the reforming of Israel, what did you find? You found Jews coming from different segments of the world coming. And the most recent were Russian Jews Ukrainian Jews we're very familiar with, large communities of Jews, Romanian Jews, American Jews, Brazilian Jews, right? From all over the world. Why? Because they had been dispersed. A few of them came back to Jerusalem. The few that did 
we'll talk about in just a few moments. All this occurred under an empire that we talked about last week, which was the Persian Empire. This is the empire of Esther. This is the empire of Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes and Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus and some of these names that you hear a little about in the book of Daniel and the book of Esther. These were huge emperors or kings that ruled this big kingdom, which was called an empire. Remember last week I said an empire is a group of kingdoms that have come together. There was approximately 120 kingdoms that had come together to make the Persian empire. They had defeated Asia, North Africa, and much of Europe. So they controlled all that. But what we find out, so that's number one. I want, there's four movements. If you're writing notes on this, there's four movements. First movement is Persia. Second movement came that there were the Greeks. And we're very familiar with the Greeks. And the Greeks started out as little city-states with philosophers, so you had Heraclitus, and you had, um, of course, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and they came from Athens or Sparta or Thessalonica. They had these little cities and little city-states, and they were all separated. They all fought each other. But then when Persia came, they decided to make good with each other so that they could fight Persia. So you had Persia, and then you had the Greeks, and the Greeks and the Persians start fighting each other. And you remember, there's a lot of great movies about the fighting of it. And the Battle of Marathon is a battle between Persia and Greece. And Greece won that battle. And you remember, the guy ran 26 miles back to say that the Greeks had won. All that is in the storyline in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you have all this Greek thing going on. The other thing the Greeks brought, they brought culture They brought language, a common language. So it was the Greek language. It was the Greek culture. They brought Greek thinking in because they were philosophers, so they brought the thinking in. And so the Greek culture eventually took over with a final person named Alexander the Great. It's now 333 BC, and he takes over everything. Anything he touches, he controls. He was unbelievably powerful, but he died young. He was such an egomaniac that he knew he was going to die. He brought his four generals together, and he didn't want any one of them to grow bigger than he was. So he independently told the four generals, I'm leaving my kingdom to you. 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 So each of them thought they were the heir apparent to the Greek empire. Well, you know what that happens when generals all think they're the number one? What happens? You have war after war after war, and the four of them started fighting. Now you go, why is this important? I'll tell you why. It's very, very important. Because two of them rose to the top. The one that took over Egypt, his name was Ptolemy, and the one that took over Syria and Mesopotamia, his name was Seleucus. These names are not important. But what is important is when they fought each other, if you know little geography, it's like an hourglass, Cilicius and the Cilicians up here, Ptolemy and the Ptolemians down here, and there was a little piece of land because you had the Mediterranean and the desert, and the middle of the hourglass was Israel. That little land that's about 45 miles wide between the mountains of the Jordan Valley and the mountains there and the Mediterranean Sea. So when they wanted to fight, 
they would come down, they would come up, and they would fight in the land of Israel. Israel was being annihilated every 10 to 20 years by outsiders, not fighting them, but fighting others. This was not a good time for Israel. So Israel made a choice. Israel decided that they would align with the Egyptian group. So now Israel is aligned with Egyptians, now 165 BC. And they align with, this, with Egypt. Well, the guys up here didn't like it. And so they started to get more powerful. And there's this big named leader. And it, you don't have to remember any of these names. But his name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Boy, try to say that real fast. Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He decided to get the Israel Israelites, or the people of Israel, so mad because they were following the Egyptians that he came down and he started to um, sacrifice pigs in the temple. Pigs. Now, what does that do to a Jew to sacrifice pigs in your temple? Jews are kosher. They don't eat pigs, right? So... In about 165 BC, one guy, one man, his name was Mattathias, he says, enough, enough, we're going to stop that. And he went in and he killed the priest who was sacrificing the pig, pigs. It was happening multiple times, all the time, and he kills them. And that began a revolt. And Mattathias had a bunch of sons the most powerful or the strongest was his name was Judah or Judas, not to be confused with Iscariot, but Judas. And they were so strong, just individually strong, that they called them the hammers. Now, in their language, it was called the Maccabees. Judas the Maccabee. And so Judas and his family started fighting against this huge army. And they beat him. And they went into the temple they lit the candelabra, and this is where one of the holidays comes of Hanukkah, is that they had one day's oil to light the candle, and it stayed lit for a week. This is the beginning of Hanukkah. It's interesting that we in the United States who are Jewish, you who are Jewish, celebrate Hanukkah. It's a very minor holiday, but it's very important because it takes you back to the time when the Israelites fought against their enemies. Hanukkah's not in the Bible or in the Old Testament. It happened in between. And so they do this, and what happens is they end up winning. And the guys in the north said, it's not worth the fight. The guys in the south said, it's not worth the fight. We're going to let them be alone. So this little area of Israel, now we're in 130 BC, this little area of Israel was allowed to rule itself. And it ruled itself, and the Maccabees, they had a big name for themselves. You know, the successors, they were called Hasmoneans. Doesn't matter what it was, except the last Hasmonean was a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the ruler who gained power, and now it's about 65 B.C. Now what happened? There's a new kingdom coming about, which is Rome. The Romans, there was a guy named Julius Caesar. You ever heard of Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar was there. He had been killed. And again, the generals 
wanted to take over from him. And there were two, three generals actually that wanted to take over, Octavian, Pompey, and Mark Anthony. They're all fighting each other. Herod went on the side of Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony didn't win, he lost. He died, he aligned with Cleopatra in Egypt. You remember Cleopatra put a snake around her neck and the viper and she got bit and committed suicide. Mark Anthony died, Pompey. Octavian won. And you know what Octavian's other name was? Caesar Augustus. Now Herod is on the wrong side of a Caesar Augustus because he went with Mark Anthony. So Herod, it's about 60-something B.C., goes to Rome and begs the forgiveness of the new emperor, Caesar Augustus, and says, I will follow you like I followed them if you allow me to live. And he did allow him to live. And he came back to Israel as the king of Israel. Not the emperor, that was Octavian Caesar Augustus, but the king of Israel. You have Herod the Great, and he did two things. He, number one, built a city, a new capital, and called it after the Caesar. He called it Caesarea. Caesarea plays a big place in the book of Acts. That's where Paul goes to Caesarea to meet Herod's great-grandchildren, Agrippa, when they have that argument in, what is it, Acts 20, 19, 20, 21, 22, wherever it is in there. And he did one other thing. He rebuilt the temple. And he said, if I'm going to get these people to follow me, I'm going to make the temple as nice and as beautiful and as ornate as Solomon's temple. And so he did that. And so when Jesus is born, you have a new temple that was built, Zerubbabel's temple that we're going to talk about in a minute, was rebuilt into the most beautiful of buildings in the ancient world. Now, where did synagogues, Pharisees, and Sadducees come from? Well, the people couldn't come back to Israel to worship because they had been dispersed. And so they started a system, the Jews, of meeting together in small groups. If you had 10 families, you could open a synagogue. And there you could have a place of worship and of the scrolls. And the larger synagogues actually had big scrolls. Smaller synagogues had smaller scrolls. And you'll recall that when Jesus would go to a synagogue, what would he do? He would open the scroll and read it and preach from it. That's what synagogues did. They would open the scroll. And so the scroll, wherever it was, they would close it up. And then the next week they would open it up. So they just kind of start at the beginning and keep going all the way through. And when they had finished it, they would start at the beginning and go all the way through. And you see that when Jesus would preach in the synagogue. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees, back in the time of the Hasmoneans, they were the ones who started ruling Israel. They didn't believe in Jehovah. They didn't believe in God. They didn't believe in the temple, but they became the Jewish rulers. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus says, you don't even believe in the resurrection. What he's saying is you don't believe in God. And they didn't believe in God. They were the Sadducees, the ruling group. Underneath the ruling group was a group of people who did believe in God. They were the Pharisees. Don't believe in God do believe in God. Both of them lost their way. 
So next week, when we start talking about Christmas and the things surrounding Christmas, you can begin to understand the changes that have been made from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, turn your Bibles to Haggai. I gave you all that time to find it. Oh, can I give you one more thing? I left one thing out. Golds, myrrh, and frankincense. Why did Herod hate the wise men? You ever think of that? When we get to the wise men, which is not for four more weeks, but when we finally get to the wise men and the magi, Herod hates the wise men. He's afraid of the wise men. Why? Because the wise men came from where? Persia. Persia was the enemy of Rome. The Persians had tried to come back when they lost Greece and they lost to the uh, Ptolemies and they lost all these people. Eventually, they started fighting Rome. And Herod one time had to fight against the Persians. But in the New Testament, they're called Parthians, same thing. But the wise men were Persians. They came from afar. And when they came, Herod thought that maybe they were coming as spies, poising as wise magi. That's why, because of that, Herod was scared of everybody. Now let's go to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai in the book, and I didn't, we're not going over the whole book, but it's basically four little sermons or four speakings of God to the people through Haggai. Last week I told you the first one. Chapter 2, the first couple of verses, is the second one. So let's begin there. In the seventh month, on the 20th day of the month, so again, it's the month of uh, King Darius's rule, which started in 522 B.C., so two years later um, was, which we learn in chapter 1, was 520. It's now the seventh month on the 27th day. When we started this book, it was the sixth month on the first day. So we're a month and 27 days later. So it's probably October, somewhere mid to late October, 520 BC, about seven or eight weeks after the beginning of the story. And you remember in the beginning of the story, the people were building their houses and not building the house of the Lord. And Haggai, God told Haggai, Haggai told the people, stop building your houses and start building the house of the Lord. Your houses are fine. You've done a great job with your houses. Now turn your attention on the house of the Lord. You remember that last week? That was five or six weeks ago. Now we've picked out the story. Speak now, verse 2 to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltai, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshazak, the high priest, they were the two that he was speaking to, and to all the remnant of the people who were there. So you're speaking to the governor, you're speaking to the priest, you're speaking to the people, the same that he did in chapter one. And say these words, verse three, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So at the very beginning of this, they're starting to lose their interest in this because they realize there's a few old elderly people that have to be now 80 or 90 years old because it was 70 years ago that the temple was destroyed that remember the beauty of the temple. 
and they remember this incredible temple. When they were kids, they used to go to this incredible temple. When their young brothers and sisters were being dedicated, they were there and saw this temple. Then they go to Babylon, they come back, it's destroyed, and these people are building this thing, and it doesn't look good at all. And they're going, this is not what we left. This is not what we had. They've lost, and and they're telling these people this. And he's saying, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? What he's saying is there's a few of you who saw the original. Most did not, because most are under 70. So most people only heard about the beauty or read about the beauty in the earlier parts of the scripture. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? That's a backwards way, a double negative saying, it looks terrible. It looks terrible. We're doing a bad job here. We're doing a bad job. Why are they doing a bad job? I think for two reasons. One is they had no money. So where are they getting all this gold and silver and crusted crusted jewels? They don't have them. It's all been stolen from their families in years past. That's number one. And number two is they've been in exile for years, so they have no artisans. There's no artist. There's no creative people. They've been substantive living, just living off the land. And when you're doing that, you don't have creativity. You're just trying to make a living. You're just trying to exist. For 70 years, they're existing. And they come back, and they're told to build this incredible building. They have no money to do it, and they have no technicians, artistic people, engineers, all those. They don't have any. Why? Because they didn't get trained. And so they're building this very small temple. And the old people are going, it's not like it used to be. Something's never changed. (laughs) Can I just pause and make an editorial statement? There's no Billy Graham anymore. It's not like it used to be. But let me tell you, God is raising a new generation up. And if you're looking for Billy Graham, God bless you, he's dead because he was a human. And I loved him. I met him. I was affected by him. The guy who led our family to Christ was led to Christ by Billy Graham. He is in the bloodline of my spiritual life, but the man is dead. Long live Christ, not long live. And you know, we're pointing going, well, it's just not the same. And you're right, it's not the same. But God has a work for this generation. And let us not tell everybody, especially our kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids, that it's all over. It was good then, and it's not good now, and the world's going to hell, and you're just living in it. Well, the world was going to hell when you were young, too. Just, we've got to encourage our people. we got to encourage our kids. we got to encourage the next generation, Because God is doing a work in the world, and he always does, and it may not be with gold, and it may not be with artisans, but he has a work. Does he not? It was out of that little temple that great things occurred. It was out of that little temple 
that the whole generations came, 400 years of silence, and it was out of that little temple that we see Christ coming. It's amazing. How do you see it now? That's a great question. How do you see it now? How do you see it now? Think about it. How do I see the world now? I see that God is alive and well and working on the planet Earth. He is working here. And the Holy Spirit is working here. And it's not like it used to be. Absolutely true. But he's working. And he's doing amazing things. So what does he say about this? Because they've stopped the work. They've only been four or five weeks working, and they stopped the work. And what does he say in the next verse, verse four? Yet, that means like, but, but now, what, is he, what are the next words? Be strong, or take courage, depending on your translation. Be strong, take courage, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, period. Be strong, take courage, O Joshua, the high priest, period. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. That is the message here. Now, wait a minute. We've heard this message, haven't we? Have you heard this message before? The other Joshua, this is Joshua, the son of whatever his name was, the high priest. The other Joshua is in Joshua chapter 1 when they actually came out of the land of Egypt and went into the promised land. So think about it. They came out of Syria, Babylon, and came back to the promised land. They were discouraged And God said, be strong, take courage, be strong, take courage, fear not, get to work. When they came back the first time, there was another Joshua. Not Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, Joshua, the son of Nun, N-U-N. Verse 6 of chapter 1 of Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law of Moses. Verse nine, be strong and courageous and do not be afraid. The exact same words in a trilogy. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, O people. Do not fear. The exact same words that were said 700 years before. We think, oh, they must have said those words just a few years ago. No, it was 700 years ago. That's when Joan of Arc was alive. When Joan of Arc was alive, to us, that's 700 years ago. Be strong and courageous and fear not. The threefold problem they had, let me just give it to you. They were giving exaggerated importance to the externals of religion and worship. Oh, Solomon's temple was so good. What what did that mean? That means I have to worship because I have gold and I have crusted jewels and I have 
silver and I have the beautiful candelabras, does that make worship better? Does it? I think we've learned that it doesn't. Why do we know that it doesn't? Because the New Testament, which we're not getting into, it says that God lives in jars of clay. Isn't that interesting? God abided in Solomon's temple filled with all that gold. Today, God abides in jars of clay. Who are the jars of clay? You and me. Wow. You and me. And maybe you have a gold ring for your wedding or you have a little diamond around your but nothing like Solomon. We are just jars of clay and God lives in us. So number one, they exaggerated the importance of the externals. Number two, they idealized and glorified the past. They were complaining. There were people there, the old people that couldn't help. They're there just going, you know, it's not like it used to be. It's not like it used to be. They didn't have photographs. They only had a memory. So they're saying, it's not like it used to be. Remember when we used to fill up those stadiums? Did you ever go to Promise Keepers? We filled those stadiums up. We don't do that anymore. And then third, they compared the present circumstances with the past. So kind of the golden days, the golden age. Please be careful. God has placed you and me at this time in this place to do something. Has he not? And what's interesting is when you get to the New Testament, there's no longer land and a temple that's important. He doesn't talk about the promised land much anymore. Why? Because it's now a new kingdom. I have come to bring a new kingdom, not the old kingdom. And it's not much about the temple. The temple was there for a little bit, but that even got destroyed. And Jesus said it would get destroyed. The beautiful Herod's temple would be destroyed. And it doesn't really matter because the temple, God doesn't abide in a place. The temple, God abides with his people. You see, that's you and me. It's you and me that are important. The temple comes, the temple goes. It's you and me that God, Christ, died for. Christ did not die to save the temple. In fact, he said it would be destroyed. Christ died to do what? To save us. Now, our time is up, and we're heading into Christmas, and I'm excited about it. But we need to understand what was in the Old Testament has changed into the New Testament. Let me give you an example. Let me just give you a thought. I was thinking about this the other day. Elizabeth and I had traveled a lot this year because we were trying to reignite a lot of the relationships we had with our partners. And it was really the first, this last year, it was really the first year that we could travel without COVID restrictions. The United States was without it, but you'd go to different places and all kinds of restrictions. I didn't want to go with restrictions and end up getting stuck there because of some false report or whatever. So we did a lot of travel this year. Well, one time I was traveling, uh, we were traveling in Africa and we came back to England and we wanted to spend a few days there. And before that, our neighbor, who's my insurance, did, did my car insurance, I asked the eternal question that all of us ask, when you rent a car, do you get the insurance? Does anybody ever rent a car and you always, they always say, do you want the insurance? 
And then they don't say, do you want the insurance? They have four of them. And then you realize when you say yes, you just doubled the cost of the car. I'm like, the car's 80 bucks and now it's 160 a day. And I'm going, this is not right. So I asked the question to my, our insurance person. I said, do you need, do I need to say yes or can I say no and save all that money? He says, your insurance that you have is perfect. You never need to get all that insurance. I said, thank you. So I never get the insurance. So back to Africa, we get to England. England has nice trains, but it's not like continental Europe. You, you got to get a car if you want to go to certain places. And we wanted to go to certain places. So I thought I'd get a car that was like my car because they drive on the opposite side, right? So I thought I'm getting my exact car. So at least if I'm on the opposite side, I know where everything is. So I got my car, which was way too big for England and those hedgerows. And the guy there, nice guy, I went to my own, the one, the agency I always go to, the rental car company I always go to, the one that's green, I always go to it. Do you want the insurance? I go, no, no. My guy says, I don't need it. Okay, no, 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 you gotta sign, no, 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 no. Off we go through England, having the time of our life. Almost hit twice. My, my side, you know, you're forgetting. And anyway, we made it, thank God. Almost twice got hit. Or I hit almost. It was my fault. You, know. you always blame the others, right? I was in an, I was, they caused the accident. It was going to be me, but no accident. I come back and our neighbor goes, how was your summer? I great. Went to Africa, went to England. And oh, by the way, thanks for telling me. I saved hundreds of pounds. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, you told me don't get the insurance. He goes, that was for America. You're not covered in Europe. You're not covered in Canada. You're not covered in Mexico, in Bahamas, Jamaica, all those places you go to, get the insurance. For a week... We were driving around thinking we were insured, thinking we had security, thinking that if something happened to us, we would be fine, and we had nothing. Can I tell you, we drive through life thinking we're okay, because we don't get in accidents all the time. And you know what? You can support yourself, and you can do it on your own for a while, absolutely, People go, I don't need God. Well, you're right. Maybe you don't need him today, but you do need him. My friends, you need Jesus Christ. And you go, I don't need him today. You need Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You need him here in the United States. You need him in Europe. You need him in Africa. You need him in your own personal life. And you go, but I'm okay today. You're one heartbeat away from not being okay. You're one crazy driver out there on Glades Road from being away. And there are a lot of them out there. And you may be one of them. So maybe I'm... What does that mean? We can laugh about it, but it is a very serious thing. It is really serious. And as we come to Christmas, 
can I just say, be open to share your views about Christ during Christmas. Don't be afraid to share about it because it's far more than insurance. It's a relationship with the Almighty God. We talk about insurance and it's fun and laugh about it, but it's really about having a relationship with the Almighty God because we now are the temple. You and I are the temple of God. He came to indwell us, not to indwell a building 8,000 miles away. Let's pray together.